Isaiah chapter number 45 this morning. Isaiah chapter number 45. The Lord laid this message on my heart in the reading of Scripture, and uh, I, I hope it will be a blessing to you. God used it to speak to me. Isn't it good that the Lord speaks to us through His Word? We have a personal God, and, and, I, and I don't mean that He is what we want Him to be, but what I mean is He is present personally in our lives. What a precious Savior we have. Isaiah chapter number 45, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. We'll read down to verse number 13. Isaiah chapter 45, verse number 1. The Word of God says, Thus saith the Lord to His anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden to subdue nations before Him. And I will loose the loins of kings to open before Him the two leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. I will give thee the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by thy name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob my servant's sake and Israel mine elect, I have even called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. I am the Lord and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee that thou hast not known, though thou hast not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is none else. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Drop down ye heavens from above and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open and let them bring forth salvation. And let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe unto him that striveth with his Maker. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him that fashioneth it, What makest thou? Or thy work, he hath no hands. Woe unto him that saith unto his father, What begettest thou? Or to the woman, What hast thou brought forth? Thus saith the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and his Maker, Ask me of things to come concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands, command ye me. I have made the earth and created man upon it. I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens and all their hosts have I commanded. I have raised him up in righteousness and I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city and he shall let go my captives, not for price nor reward, saith the Lord of hosts. Let's stop there and pray together. Father, we love you. Thank you for letting us be here today. Thank you for this uh, good group of people that have gathered together. They're here today, Lord, because they love you, Lord. They're here today, uh, even those that may not know you. They're here because you are dealing in their hearts and in their lives, and they are open to that. Father, I just pray that this morning you would take your word and use it in our hearts and lives. I pray that you'd speak to each individual person today. Lord, if I was tasked with that, I could not do it. But I'm trusting the sweet Holy Ghost to use your word in each and every heart individually to speak to us that thing which is most needful uh, concerning our life to draw us closer unto you. Lord, in a group this size, it wouldn't be a surprise to know there's some that are lost here. But Lord, you love them. You died for them. You, You paid the price for them. And they don't have to stay lost. They don't have to die in that condition. They can come to you. And Lord, I pray that they'd see that today through the Word of God. Lord, undoubtedly in a group this size, there's folks that are struggling, discouraged. I pray you'd encourage them. Lord, maybe some that are drifting, that are wandering, that have allowed their heart to be distracted away from you. I pray that you'd arrest their attention, draw them back under uh, commitment unto you and devotion unto you. And Lord, I pray that everything that's done would be done in a way that men would have to stand back in wonder and awe, knowing it's been your hand that's done it. 
And we'll be sure to thank you, Lord, for the glory and, and, and the praise that you deserve. Lord, we love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. In Isaiah chapter number 45, we pick up in a theme that the prophet Isaiah has been unfolding before the children of Israel concerning two distinct things. You'll notice in our reading the mention of a uh, proper name, the name Cyrus in verse number 1. And this is not an obscure reference. We know who Cyrus is. Cyrus was the Medo-Persian king through which the children of Israel would be delivered from Babylonian captivity. The thing that's interesting about it is uh, this is about a good 200 years before Cyrus ever even was walking this earth. That tells you we've got an inspired Word of God, doesn't it? Uh, uh, Listen, before uh, Cyrus's grandmama knew uh, her child's name, God knew Cyrus's name and pinned down in the Word of God that he would be the very one. And by the way, whenever uh, Isaiah pins this down, the Medo-Persian Empire is not even a player on the world stage. It was remarkable that God would reveal this unto His prophet and disclose it unto His people. So this is an arresting passage of Scripture for the children of Israel. And there has already been much that Isaiah has dealt with. He's talked about how the children of Israel, because of their disobedience to the Lord, would be led away and would spend 70 years in captivity. And now he has moved along in the story to verse uh, chapter 45 in telling them how they would remarkably be delivered by an unsuspecting individual, someone uh, that no one would imagine God would use, God would deliver them in this way. Understanding that context is key to understanding our text this morning. We could say it this way, two events loom large in this portion of Isaiah's prophecy. The first is Israel's coming captivity. That's bad news. In other words, God is saying there's hard times coming down the road for Israel as a nation. The second event is Israel's strange deliverance. So here's what God's saying. You might read this passage and and when it talks about striving with your maker and, and criticizing God, you might say, well, preacher, what a strange thing to say here. But in the Jewish mind at this time, as they're listening to this prophecy, there is some very disturbing, troubling news coming out of heaven for them. They're learning that they're going to go through hard times through uh, dark captivity, through deep bondage, through things that they didn't want, that they didn't pray for, that they didn't look for. And then, wonder of all wonders, God's not going to raise up a Jewish judge to deliver them from the people. Rather, He's going to raise up a Gentile emperor to deliver them in a strange, strange way. In other words, just as it was in Isaiah's day, if you'd been sitting there, you would have called Him crazy too. You'd have said, ain't no way this is going to happen. By the way, when Isaiah pins this prophecy down, things is going pretty good in Israel uh, on a societal level. Uh, they have a stable ruler. Uzziah is ruling upon the throne. Economically, they are doing well. Militarily, they are doing well. Diplomatically, they are doing well. So when Isaiah shows up in court and says, listen, I hate to break the news to you, but there's hard times coming. It is a puzzling message for the people of Israel. God discloses to them that they could respond to these truths in one of two ways. He uses some interesting language down in verse number 9. I want you to notice it with me. The Lord says, you know, in light of this, these hard times are coming, things you are not looking forward to, things that you don't want to happen. He, He gives a warning as to their response. He says, woe unto him that striveth with his maker. Then he says this, let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. Now the word potsherd is not a word we use very common today, but I'll tell you exactly what it is. It is a broken piece of pottery. 
It's as if you took one of these clay pots or uh, what is it that they call them that you see out on the, it's not stucco, but one of these pots that people have out on their porch that, that grow things. Terracotta. That sounds like a food. Man, that made me hungry. Uh, yeah, I will have the grilled chicken terracotta, please. That sounds good, don't it? With extra queso. Amen. I'm going to order that for lunch. If you were to take one of these pots and shatter them, break them, and pick up one of those shards, that is what a potsherd is. We find it elsewhere in the Word of God whenever Job, in the midst of his calamity, sits down in the ash pile uh, there by his house and he's got boils all over himself. And the Bible says he takes a potsherd and scrapes his boils. It is a sharp piece of pottery. Now, considering what the Lord says here, it reminds me of this. Our text deals with Israel's response to these two events. Unpleasant things. Troublesome things. And Isaiah reveals to us that they could view themselves in one of two ways in the midst of their trials. Now remember what God would say later on through Jeremiah in the midst of their captivity, that they were like clay that was in the potter's hand. Isaiah evokes this same idea here. He says that God is your maker. And we have one of two ways that we're going to face trials in our life. If they were surrendered, if they were moldable, if they were trusting, then they would be like a piece of clay that's in the potter's hand. In other words, we could say it this way. They would be like a beloved project that God is working on, molding, shaping into be a beautiful finished product. But here we find that because they chose to strive with their maker, that if they were bitter, if they were rigid, if they were resentful, if they were resisting, then they would not be like a piece of clay moldable in the potter's hand, but rather they would be like a broken piece of pottery, like a broken potsherd that is damaging and is useless to other people. Can I ask you this question today? You know, we all come into things that we didn't pray for, we didn't expect, we didn't anticipate. Uh, there will be things that you and I face in this room that, that we think are too far beyond our ability to bear. Things that we, uh, if we knew they were coming, we'd beg God to never let them befall us. But in the midst of those trials, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of tribulation, there may be a lot of things we can't control. But the one thing we can control is how we respond to those things. I want to preach to you on this thought this morning, striving with the Maker. If you want a little more descriptive, a beloved project, or a broken posture. In the midst of your suffering, which do you resemble? Here in our text, Israel chose to take the path of being a broken potsherd, of being angry with God, of being rigid and resisting against God's working in their life. They, they chose to be resentful and accusatory towards the Lord. And so they, they hamstring, they, they sabotage what God was seeking to do in them as a people. And they prevented God from getting glory out of their lives. I began to think about this idea of a potsherd, a broken piece of, of pottery or, or, or of clay. And, and there was three things, four things, five, eight things. We'll see how it goes. There, but, but at least, at least four things that came to my mind about. Now, when you think about a beautiful finished piece of pottery, be it a bowl or be it a pitcher or be it a vase, it has been designed with care. It has been designed with craftsmanship. It has been designed with forethought and for a purpose. But if you were walking along and you just found a piece of broken pottery, it wouldn't be very valuable to you. Do you know why that is? Let me list a few things. Number one, a broken potsherd is deformed. So what do you mean, preacher? It no longer resembles what it was intended to resemble. It has lost its form. We could say it this way. 
Uh, it is no longer bearing testament to the craftsmanship of the Maker. Can I tell you, very often in our life, when we come into hard times, when we come into trials and tribulation, if we get a bitter attitude towards God, we begin to no longer resemble what God intended us to be. Uh, we no longer hold the beauty of a Christian testimony. And when I talk about beauty, I don't mean it in an aesthetic sense, but I mean our lives should be a testimony uh, to God's grace and God's mercy and God's careful providence over us. But a broken potsherd, if you found a piece, you'd struggle to even know what it once was. Can I tell you, I've met Christians that if you were to see them as they are today, you'd struggle to ever know they'd been a Christian in the first place. Now let me be abundantly clear, when God saves a man, He saves him eternally. Uh, there's no question about that. I don't just believe in the eternal security of the believer. The Bible teaches the eternal security of the believer. Lest you think I'm, I'm wavering from that, but I'm saying in their life where once you could look at them and see a person that lived in the power of God, the strength of God, that would have boldly gave testimony to the work of God in their life because bitterness has set in, because they've strived against God, because they refuse to submit to God. You look at their life and it is deformed from what it once was. It is no longer a testimony. Then I thought about that broken posture. Not only is it deformed, but it is definitionally destroyed. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, not only has it lost its form, but it's lost its function. It doesn't do what it once did. Now you say, preacher, are you saying that if I let bitterness in my life that God's done with me? No, listen, hey, praise God, there's even times when God can take that broken posture and scrape the suffering of another person. But I am saying this, God's intention for us is that we serve Him and be useful in His work. In other words, losing its form reminds us it has no testimony, but losing its function reminds us that it has no service. It's not of any use anymore. It's not being used to any effect any longer. And listen, I understand that in our life that we go through seasons where we serve God in various ways and there may be things uh, that due to our health or due to our time or due to our ability is not uh, available to us any longer. But God didn't save any of us just to sit on the sideline. He saved all of us to serve Him. I've seen Christians that once served Him ably and faithfully that because they let bitterness in their life, because God was doing something they didn't understand and they weren't willing to trust Him to be God, they quit on the Lord and quit serving Him. And then I thought about this, a broken potsherd is discarded. In other words, it is something that once it is broken, it is just cast away and no longer used. And I found this, that I've seen people go through suffering in life such that they lost their hope. They lost their concept of a future. I'm not talking about how God views you. I'm talking about how you view you. Can I tell you something? Hey, the grace of God is sufficient. Whatever you've been through, whatever you've done, you may be done with God, but He is not done with you. But often when people allow bitterness in their life, and they allow a bad spirit in their life, they begin to get discouraged and they begin to say, I mean, like Elijah did long ago, hey, I even I only am left. Take away my life. It is enough now, Elijah said. What was he saying? He was saying, God, I don't know if you're done with me, but I'm done with you. Just let me lay down here and die because I don't want to go any further. If you allow bitterness to settle in your life, you will begin to view yourself as discarded. And then I would say this in passing, a broken potsherd is dangerous. It can cut things. It cannot be safely handled. Oh my, we might just find a little preaching ground here. Hey, let me tell you something. Uh, it's a problem when people can no longer handle us. You say, what do you mean, preacher? I mean, uh, I've seen people get bitter and allow resentment in their life to such that people don't even want to be around them anymore. 
because they sat on a hair trigger all the time and you could not deal with them. You couldn't speak to them. And I would say this, that when a Christian allows bitterness in their life, what does the book of Hebrews say? It says uh, a a root of bitterness uh, uh, taking root, springing up, and thereby many be defiled. I know what you and I think. We all think we can keep our bitterness to us. That ain't bothering nobody but us, but it don't work that way. It will spring up. It will defile others. It will affect others. So what are we as we face suffering in our life? Do we view ourselves as a piece of clay in the potter's hands, able to be molded and shaped, able to have pressure applied, able to be spun upon the wheel, able to have heat applied to our life because we know that the potter is doing something meaningful and perfect, or are we like that broken potter, rigid and shattered and unyielding and unwilling to let God use us any further? In our text here, we have a warning about striving with God like a broken potsherd. And I've got just a few things I want to say about it, and then we'll be done this morning. Look with me at verse number 9. We see, first off, Isaiah says this, Woe unto him that striveth with his Maker. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. Let me say a word first off about the striving of the broken potsherd. You know, when we and when I speak of striving, I remember hearing a man say one time, you know, there's nothing wrong with questioning God as long as we don't criticize God. I'm not saying you ain't going to have hard days. I'm not saying there ain't going to be times that you look up towards heaven and say, God, I don't know what you're doing and I don't understand it and I'm not happy with it. But as long as at the end of all of that, you're willing to say, but God, you're God and I'm not, I'm yours and I'm willing to put myself in your hands. When a person strives with God, what they're doing is trying to thwart the will of God in their life trying to short-circuit what God is trying to do. And what does the Bible say about it? Well, number one, it says it is a fearful thing to strive. He says, woe unto him. That word woe is a warning. God is giving fit warning to people that would resist against His will and working in His life. You know why? Because it is a destructive thing to try to thwart God. We'll say a word about this in a moment, but how foolish it is for us to look at God and think that we can overcome His will with our will. I want to be very clear what I'm about to say. God is not going to force Himself on any of our lives. But understand that when we resist God's dealing in our life, we do so at our own peril. It's a fearful thing. We live in a world that has lost a sense of reverential respect. We are basically living in a world where people are bouncing around like a ball inside of a pinball machine, never reckoning and reconciling with consequences and real meaningful danger in life. And as a society, we are becoming unraveled because of it. The people of God ought to be different. We ought to understand that we live in a world of consequences. And if we choose, hey, listen, you and I, we can go our own way, but we better understand our own way is not as good as His way. And we do so at our own Peril. It is a fearful thing to strive. Notice what he says next. He says, Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. You can almost hear the... What's the word? It's not irony. You can almost hear the absurdity in what's presented here. That striveth with his maker. Elsewhere, the Word of God would liken a person doing this to clay striving against the potter. And just as the clay has uh, no chance of thwarting what the potter is doing, likewise you and I, we have no chance of thwarting what God is desiring to do in our life except to our own destruction. I'd say this, at the end of the day, we need to be consistently reminded that it is a futile thing to strive against God. 
We can try to exert our will. We can try to exert our way. And there may be times that God permits it in chastening in our life, but it won't ever be to our benefit. It won't ever be to His glory. You need to make your mind up today who God is. There's a lot of Christians walking around they ain't figured out who God is yet. And what I mean by that is that that they have not come to the apprehension that in their life, try as they may, they are not the authority. God is the authority. I knew you'd have fun in this message. Are you enjoying it yet? It ain't no more fun for me. Somebody say amen to that. Hey, listen, you can try striving against Him, but at the end of the day, you ain't going to kick Him off His throne. Mankind can howl into the wind. We can shake our fist at the moon. We can determine that we're going to be the masters of our own destiny. But at the end of the day, it is all a futile thing because He is the Creator. He is God, not us. We can try, but in so, we'll only destroy our own lives. We will not thwart His authority in any way. For all of human history, since the fall of mankind in the garden, man has sought to exert his own will above God's will. And never once has God moved from His throne. And so you can try to take things in your own control, but at the end of the day, they ain't going to be in control. They're only going to be out of control. It's a futile thing to strive. And then I would say this, it is a foolish thing to strive. Look what he says. Let the potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth. The idea behind this being that it is a distinctly earthly or temporal thing to strive against the Master. We could maybe say it this way, that isn't how a Christian behaves. That is an earthly characteristic and quality. And I would say this, it is a fearful thing, it is a futile thing, but it is a foolish thing to strive against God. Only, listen, only a person that's never known God and who He is could think that they could somehow exert their will above His. He is God, whether we like it or not, whether we accept it or not, it will not displace His authority in our lives. And Isaiah reminds us that the earth, that human beings, that mankind, unregenerate, fallen man, has been striving with God from the beginning. But God saved you and He saved me to deliver us from that. To change our perspective and to make us fit vessels for the Master's use. We see the striving of the broken posture. And then notice what he says. He goes on a little further and asks a series of questions. He says, shall the clay... Say to him that fashioneth it, what makest thou? Or thy work. In other words, would his work say this? He hath no hands. Woe unto him, verse 10, that saith unto his father, what begettest thou? Or to the woman, what hast thou brought forth? In this series of four questions, we have not only the striving of the broken potsherd, but we have the slander of the broken potsherd. You know what I found? This is just a human nature thing. No matter how many times a person messes up their life, they will never blame themselves for it. No matter how many times God gets them out of the messes that they have put themselves in, they will always find a way, if they want to, to blame God for the next mess that they get themselves into. It's a remarkable feat of human, I don't want to say intelligence, but the human mind and the human spirit to be able to always somehow blame the one perfect being in existence for every problem that we experience. And I found this, when a Christian grows bitter in their life, they somehow begin to appropriate unto God every mistake that they've ever made. 
You find this in the first man uh, with whom bitterness is deeply tied in the Word of God. And that's Cain, uh, uh, that, that's Esau in the Old Testament. He is uh, tied distinctly in the book of Hebrews with bitterness and with anger. And Esau, he found a way to blame everybody in his life for his problems but himself. We have to do this to allow for bitterness. I, I, if we're going to be bitter, the one person we can't be bitter with is ourselves. We've either got to take ownership of our decisions and choices or we have to transfer them on to everyone else to live a life full of bitterness. And so invariably, when a person lets bitterness into their heart and life, they will begin to slander the very God that created them. What do they slander about them? Well, I notice a few things here. The first thing he says in verse 9 is this, Shall the clay say to him that fashioneth it, What makest thou? In other words, would the clay look back at the potter and say, what exactly are you designing and creating in the making of myself? In other words, we could say it this way, that when a person grows bitter, they begin to slander God's providence. That His wisdom, that His direction in their life is unwise. I'll tell you this, man, you live this life, this Christian life very long, there's going to be times that you don't understand what God's doing. But it's in those moments you have to make up your mind that He's God and that you're not. Else you'll begin to look and think you can do a better job of being God than He can do and Him being God. They begin to slander His providence. And how many times in your life have you been tempted to say, you know, I really don't know that God knows what He's doing in my life. How many times have you been tempted through bitterness, through anger, through struggles, through strife, through trials and tribulations to say, if God was the God He said He was, then He wouldn't be doing this in my life. They slander His providence. Not only that, look at the next phrase. He says, or thy work. In other words, saying, would, would his work, would the clay look back and say he hath no hands? That's an interesting assertion to make of God, isn't it? He hath no hands. What's he saying there? Well, in the context of clay, looking back at the potter, what he's saying is, you have no power to change anything in my life. Now, it's interesting because the clay would not be there in the first place if the potter had no hands. In your life and mine, man, we wouldn't even be here if God wasn't who He is. Here's what they do. They slander not only His providence, but they slander His power. Once they've been reminded that the judge of all the earth doeth all things well, once they've been reminded that God's never made a mistake, so He ain't made a mistake in their life, they have to figure out a different way to slander Him. So here's what they do. They say, well, God is too weak, too incapable of accomplishing this in my life. This is one of the great points of comfort for every born-again believer. There is nothing beyond God's capability. You know what that tells me? That tells me anything that I come into contact with in my life, any, any trial, any suffering, any unpleasantry that I come into in my life, it is not because God lacks the ability to shield me from it. It's not because God lacks the ability to translate and change and transform what I'm experiencing. But rather it's because He in His perfect will has decided it's what's best for my life. This gives a great measure of peace to the child of God because we're reminded that in everything that we experience, we can, as the Bible says, give thanks unto Him because there's nothing we face but what He has dispensed it unto us. But they look back and said He has no hands. He's not capable. He's not able of changing this in my life. And then notice the next slander they give. They said, Woe unto him that saith unto his father, What begettest thou? Or to the woman, what hast thou brought forth? Now, I, that's strange language. It says father, and then it says to the woman. And I, I'm not going to get into it right now, but there is 
some typology between Cyrus and the Lord Jesus Christ as being the uh, the deliverer of the children of Israel. And so undoubtedly the Holy Ghost is tipping His hat to the divinity of Jesus Christ, knowing that uh, Mary, uh, she may have been the earthly mother of the body of the Lord Jesus, but was not His mother in the sense that His heavenly Father was His Father. But in this illustration, what's being presented to us is the idea of a person's parents and their roles in their life. And the first is this. He looks at God and says unto Him, as His Father, what begettest thou? What are you doing in my life? What have you had? Have you had a son? Have you had a child? Or have you had just a burden? Have you had just a mistake in your life? In other words, we could say this, they slander not only His providence and His power, but they slander His parenting. The role of a father is that of protecting and providing in a home. It's His responsibility to provide a fit environment in which a child can grow and can develop. We could maybe call it the caretaking of the life of the family. And you know, oftentimes we then, when we're bitter, when we're angry against God, we begin to accuse Him of not taking proper care of us, of neglecting us in light of another person, of not seeing to our needs the way that we need Him to. Can I tell you this? Hey, God knows what we have need of before we ask. We are His child if we've been born again by the grace of God, and we can rest in the fact that He as a Father will always see to our needs tells me this, if there's something I'm experiencing in my life that I may not like, that I may not enjoy, I can trust that my Heavenly Father has control of every bit of it. But in bitterness, we slander His parenting. We say, God, you don't know what you're doing. (laughs) You've messed up in my life where I wouldn't be experiencing this. And of course, again, I, I think we probably all question God at times, but we've got to content ourselves that He is God and that He is a trustworthy God. They slander His parenting. And then look at the next phrase. Or to the woman. And I, I think it's, it's reasonable to infer here it's talking about a mother. Or to the woman, what hast thou brought forth? In other words, what have you given birth to? What have you produced? And here, I think he is leaning upon the natural inclination of a mother to love and to care for and to nurture a child. Certainly in a home, it is the father's responsibility to provide an environment conducive to a child growing. But then within that realm, it is the mother's responsibility to nurture and to care. Uh, the uh, book of Proverbs, Solomon spoke uh, about he was only tender in his mother's sight. In other words, hey, it's a mama's job to love her babies, to care for them, to have compassion towards them. That is what we often call maternal instinct, but it really is divine design that that is the role that a mother is to play in a home. And so what is they accusing God of here? Well, they look at God and they refer to Him in this respect. They said, if you were a mother, you wouldn't be a very loving mother to us. We could say this, they slander His providence and His power and His parenting, but they slander His pity, His compassion. You know where we always wind up? Man, this is a bad place to be. We always, if bitterness settles in our heart long enough towards God, eventually we'll land to the place where we'll say, God doesn't love me. He doesn't love me. If He loved me, He wouldn't let me be going through this. If He loved me, He wouldn't allow this to happen in my life. It's a dangerous thing when we begin to question the very love of God. For the love of God is the very basis of our entire relationship with Him. How can we function as a Christian if we don't have a basic fundamental understanding that God loves us? It's so important that, hey, God sent Christ to Calvary 
and he, he, he effectuated many things. He accomplished many things in doing that. But one of the things he did is he commended his love toward us. He expressed to us his love. If we ever need to wonder whether he loves us, we can look at Calvary and be reminded of how much he loves us. But when we choose to strive against the Lord to resist His working in our heart and life, it will invariably lead to a place because we can't admit that we're bitter. That's the key to bitterness is we can't admit we're bitter. If we admit we're bitter, we have to do something about it. If we admit we're angry with God, we know that God is perfect in all things. So if we admit we're angry with Him, we're going to have to get right with Him. And oftentimes, we just flat out ain't done being angry yet. You ever been like that? I have. There's been times I just ain't been over it yet. I'm not ready to get over it yet. And so oftentimes the way that we'll prevent, delay that, forestall that is we'll say, well, God just don't love me the way that He ought to love me. But listen, let me just, let's all have a real good reality check right here. We don't, none of us deserve the love of God. So that, that, I mean, on its face is an invalid accusation to make. But let me go a step further. I think God has done everything that could be asked to prove His love towards us. It's always laughable to me, you know, I, when, you, when you hear uh, people that deny the Bible and deny the truth of it, that one of the accusations they'll always make is they'll say, well, I just don't see how a loving God could send someone to hell. This is probably one of the most intellectually weak arguments a person could make. Because if you read through your Bible, you won't find a God that's letting you drift off to hell uh, through His indifference. You'll find a God that was willing to Himself lace His boots up and march like it with His face like a flint towards Jerusalem up Calvary's hill and bear your sin for you to keep you from dying and going to hell. A God that has put love into action in a way that no one could have ever even fathomed. That's the God of the Bible. But oftentimes in the midst of our bitterness, we'll begin to say, well, God don't love me. If He loved me, I wouldn't be going through what I'm going through. Hey, we can have that attitude. We can say God don't know what He's doing. Or if He does know what He's doing, He don't have the power to do it right. Or if He does have the power to do it right, He don't care enough to take care of me. Or if He cares enough to take care of me, He loves everybody else more than He loves me. And that's what Israel was saying towards God. They would one day say, I thought we were the people of God, so where then is the God of the people? Why is He letting this happen in our life? We can have that attitude, but we have it to our own destruction. We see here the striving of the broken potsherd. We see the slander of the broken potsherd. But then notice what God says in verse 11. God replies back to the people of Israel in their bitterness. And He says this, Thus saith the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. By the way, He's the Holy One. Everything He does is right. And His Maker. He's the Creator. He's the Powerful One. He's capable. And this is what He said. He said, Ask me of things to come concerning my sons. And concerning the work of my hands, this is powerful, he says, command ye me. What's he saying? He's saying, if you want to know what's going on, why didn't you ask me? You know what we do in our, our bitterness? We grow silent on God. We say, well, if God's going to do me this way, I ain't going to talk to Him. I'm going to withdraw from Him. I'm not going to read His Word. I'm not going to pray to Him. I'm not going to go to the house of God where I hear preaching about Him. I'm just going to, I'm just going to pull away from Him. I'm going to sit back and sulk, just like Elijah did, didn't he? He said, I'm just going to go in this cave and sit here and wait to die. And I, I have been there and you have probably been there in your life where we've been angry with what God's been doing because we don't like it or we don't understand it. We say, I'm just going to sit back and sulk and wait for my time to come. We see the silence of the broken potsherd. But I want to remind you of three things in that silence. Seven more points after that, and then we'll start to sermon. Verse 11 reminds us 
of what they forsook in their silence. You know what they forsook? They forsook the resource of prayer. I'm not telling you that every time you have a question for God, He's going to give you the answer you want as soon as you want it. But I am saying this, that over and over and over again, God beckons us to prayer. God begs us to prayer. God bribes us to prayer. Over and over and over again, God says, you're struggling? Come to me. Hey, I'm a very present help in time of trouble. Hey, I I incline mine ear unto the need. So listen, when you're struggling, the best thing you can do is not run from God, but it's to run to God. The irony is when we sulk up on God, when we sour up on God, we forsake the very thing that is to be our deliverance. Hey, listen, the purpose in our trials is not to to break us in the sense of our own uh, ability to function, but the purpose of our trials is to beckon us closer to Him. The purpose is not to drive us away, but to draw us closer. And Israel, irony of all ironies, you know, they went into Babylonian captivity, and and, and this is just how the nature of, of man is. They spent 70 years in Babylonian captivity. That should have been a time for them to draw near to God. But instead, it was a time when they drifted from Him. They should have used that time to say we need to examine ourselves. We need to raise a generation. And that's why God, there's two reasons God put him there for 70 years. One, because he was reclaiming the lost Sabbath years. Because for 490 years they had not observed the Sabbath year. But the second reason was so a whole generation, a fresh generation, could be raised in that bondage so that they'd know, love, and appreciate God. He raised them so that hopefully there'd be a generation being told, kids, we're here because of our sin. We're here because we are wicked. We're here because we rebelled against God. You would have thought that's what they would have done with that time. Instead, you know what they did? They got comfortable in Babylon. They began to worship Babylonian idols. They began to to, uh, invest in Babylonian wealth. So much so that when God finally brings them out of captivity, there's just a handful that return back to Jerusalem. The rest of them were fat and happy and content in Babylon. The purpose of our trials is not to drive us away, but to draw us closer. And the irony, the sadness, the tragedy of it is that in the midst of this, instead of saying, God, I don't understand what you're doing, so I'm going to try to get alone and spend time with you. And even if you don't tell me why, I just want to be reminded that you're in control. Instead, they sulked up, they pulled away, they drew back from God, and in doing so, they they forsook the great resource that they have. When in our bitterness we withdraw from God, we forsake the very resource we have to understand His will, to gain comfort in the time of confusion, to gain encouragement in the time of enslavement, to understand what God is doing in our life. He just says, just ask me. Ask me of things to come concerning my sons. And then He's even stronger. He says, and concerning the work of my hands, you don't know what I'm doing? Command ye me, He says. You want to know? Ask me. Beg me, cry out unto me, but don't turn away from me. Hey, listen, you're struggling. I get it, man. I've struggled. I'll probably struggle again. But in the midst of that struggling, don't shut God out because He's trying to work in your life. We see what they forsook in their silence. Look at verse 12. He says this, I have made the earth and created man upon it. I even my hands. That's inter- They said He didn't have no hands. But He said, my hands have stretched out the heavens, and all their hosts have I commanded. They said, He doesn't have any power. 
He said, I've commanded all the hosts of heaven. We see not only what they forsook in their silence, we see what they forgot in their silence. What they forsook was the resource of prayer, but what they forgot was God's resume of power. God says, you think I'm not able? Just look up towards the heavens and ask yourself if I'm able. Just look at all of creation, which was but a moment for me. I just had to just sort of fling it out there. Didn't even take anything to do. I created all that. You think I don't have power to work in your life? Again, we often console ourselves with trying to believe that somehow we have unique circumstances that are beyond God's ability to change. Because we'll find any reason to stay angry at God. And we'll blame it on what we view as God's weakness. God's just not able to do this. There's nothing you've ever come across that God ain't able to handle. And if you don't believe that, just look back at what He's already done in your life. When was a time that He's failed you? You can't find that. There may be times that His uh, perfect providence gave you something that you didn't ask for, that you didn't want, but there's never been a time when God sought to do something in your life that He lacked the ability to do. So why now would He lack the ability? Here's the uncomfortable thought that that leaves us with. If I'm still not getting my way, it must be because I'm getting God's way. And I don't want God's way, I want my way. It leaves us with the uncomfortable thought that what we're experiencing has been delivered unto us, not by accident, but by providence. And that instead of just turning our back on God and getting angry at Him, we have to stop and pray and search our souls and ask ourselves, what is God trying to do in my life? I see what they forgot in their silence, God's resume of power. But then look at verse 13. I like this. He said, I have raised him up in righteousness. Now, I think, I think the Holy Ghost is talking about Cyrus, and I think he's also talking about Jesus here. But in the context here, the most immediate context, he's talking about Cyrus. And God says, I have raised him up. You see, this was offensive to the Jewish mind. They thought, why is deliverance coming from this Gentile emperor? Why isn't it coming from the Messiah that you promised is coming? And he says, I have raised him, Cyrus. I've raised him up in righteousness. And I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city. And that's exactly what they did. You remember, that's exactly what the Medo-Persians did uh, under uh, Nehemiah. He shall build my city and he shall let go my captives. Not for price nor reward. They didn't have to buy their freedom, saith the Lord of hosts. We see what they forsook in their silence, the resource of prayer, what they forgot in their silence, God's resume of power. Finally, and I'm done this morning, we see what they forfeit in their silence. And what did they, uh, what did they miss in all of this? God's righteous plan. They never even dawned on them. <laughs> that God could be doing something better than they could even imagine. That's why in the New Testament the Bible reminds us that I have not seen nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the hearts of men the things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. And by the way, that's not talking about a new car or a new house. That's talking about the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ Jesus, which were foreordained from before the world began, that God would fashion the redemption of humanity in such a way that mankind would be beneficiaries of the very nature of God. In other words, Paul is saying, we ain't even known the half of it. God doeth all things well. That includes your suffering. I know you don't like to hear that. I don't like to hear it when I'm suffering. But it's the truth. The things where you feel like God has dropped the ball, God is still doing perfectly. He's raised him up in righteousness. You know what God's saying? He's saying, I didn't mess up when I raised Cyrus up. I did it in righteousness. I did it my way. I did it knowing what I'm doing. 
And I would just remind you this morning, hey, you may not know God's plan, but God does. If you were to judge God's plan, if, if there's a reason this thing, this thing of the Christian life ain't a democracy. He is our king. He is not our representative. He's our king, right? I understand he's our advocate. I understand he's our mediator, right? I understand he's our intercessor. I understand all those things. But understand that the dynamic is that of he's the Lord, we're the servant. He's the king, we're the subject. If we were to vote on whether we like what God's doing in our life, there might be times we'd vote no. But it's a good thing he ain't taking a vote. He knows what he's doing. And so we are left with only one of two options. We can either say, Lord, I don't understand what you're doing, but I do understand that you're God. And I know that you've never made a mistake and you're not making one now. And I'm willing to let you work in my life and mold me and shape me and grow me into being what you desire for me to be. Or we can say, God, I'm so angry and bitter and I hate this and I don't like it. We can bow up our back and we can get rigid against God and we can refuse to let God work in our life. And if we do so, we'll be like that broken potsherd of no use to the Lord, of no glory unto Him, of no testimony of His grace, and we'll do so only to our own defeat and discouragement. You can't control your circumstances, but you and you alone can control your spirit. You and you alone can control your response to it. So how are we going to meet the things that we face? As a beloved project that God is working on, or as a broken potsherd that's of no use to anyone? Let's bow together this morning as a musician comes to play. The altar is open. And I want to invite you to meet God in this altar. If He's spoken to your heart, if He's dealt with you about something, then I invite you to come and meet Him down in this place. Open your heart to Him. Speak to Him. Let Him have His will and way. It might just be to come down and say, Lord, why? Why am I dealing with this? Why am I facing this? It might be to come down and pour out your complaint and say, Lord, I don't like what's happening, but I'm willing to let you be God and I'm willing to be your child. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.